Hi, Sean Jacobs here. Welcome back. Um, this is our second uh, episode in, in our new series called um, Africa as a Country Talk, A-I-A-T Talk. Um, you got to have your brand correct. Um, so I said Sean Jacobs. I'm the editor of the website. Um, and today, in today's episode, actually, let me, let me get my tempo up. In today's show, we actually have a really uh, interesting and exciting guest for an exciting discussion. I'm going to properly introduce him later. Uh, Paul Clark, um, he, he's a PhD student, graduate student in African-American, African and African-American studies at Harvard University, where he does work on policing, and particularly on policing um, in South Africa. And I hope that later on in the program, in a couple of minutes, we will have a... a a really good discussion around those topics. And as usual, I'm joined by um, Will Shoki, uh, who is based in Johannesburg. He's our staff writer. Um, and Will and I, what we, 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 the way we're going to try and do this, we're going to start the program off by um, having a little chat between the two of us. We'll just talk about some topics, or at least one, one topic that I think is really important today. Um, and then we'll ask Paul to join us and we'll have a discussion around policing and the, the history of colonial policing, uh, the reform of, of that policing after the end of colonialism, um, and more recently tying what's going on with the struggles around policing on the African continent with the struggles that are happening I mean, the U.S. And uh, last week, Will and I talked about this, this very interesting moment in which um, for once, we sort of taking like we we happy to take the lead from the U.S. Um, in in the way that not necessarily like every tactic, but the fact that we are sort of all amazed at the energy that's coming out of the U.S. Um, in the struggles around uh, what is known now as defunding the police, and we hope that Paul will say a little bit about some of that to us. So just by starting before I would and I chat a little bit, let me. Let me say something quickly about um, two programs that I really want to bring your attention to um, because we, we are, we are going to use this platform to talk a little bit about some of the things that we do at Africa as a country. And one of them is um, we have a new series that we started. Um, if you go to the website, uh, it's called Capitalism in My City. Um, we're doing it with a group of activists. Uh, well, actually, a, there's an organization in Nairobi called Matari. Uh, social Justice Center, and this center does a lot of work in, in Matare, which is a part of Nairobi, the city there, working-class neighborhood, um, and they do a lot of work around uh, police extrajudicial killings, like Kenya has has quite high numbers. I think I saw a number the other day uh, of last year, about 144 people were killed by the police, and this year already, it's only uh, mid-June, and they've already murdered 95 people, so... Um, we started a project with them called Capitalism in My City. We're working together with uh, Wangui Kamari, who's one of our contributing editors. Gacheke and Lena, who are two people who work at the, at the center, along with um, a sociologist called Jörg uh, Weigratz. I think I say his name right. He's at Leeds University. And the idea with this project is they will produce 12 pieces of media. This is a mixture of uh, you know, written content, and some videos, um, and if you go to the site, we're also trying to publish it not just in English, but also in Swahili. So we're trying to break this kind of monopoly of English when we talk about politics, when we talk about particularly in Africa with the other languages, not, not, just, not just the languages we inherited from colonialism, like Portuguese, 
and French, and we want to see if we can bridge the divide in, in those in the in the debates we're having about Africa, but also in bringing in foregrounding um, African languages. And for me, this is like quite an interesting and uh, uh, exciting moment that we're going to do. We're going to run the series simultaneously in Swahili and and in uh, and in English. So I would recommend that that series called Capitalism in My City. The first article we published about. Um, whether it is possible to think about the idea of full employment still in Kenya under conditions of neoliberalism. And then quickly, the second program I just want to highlight is we're running a, we, we just inaugurated our first class of what we call Africa as a Country Fellows. These are 10 young uh, writers, mostly young writers and creators, but mostly writers. We had uh, about 800 people apply for this fellowship uh, when we first announced it. Um, and we had a selection committee consisting of some of our board members, um, and we came up with 10 of these people. We, we finally selected 10 of them, um, very exciting group, uh, ranging from people working on class identities in rural KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, an Indian uh, South African, or South Africans of Indian descent. I don't know if many of you know that the, the first uh, Indians arrived in South Africa already at the, uh, with slavery. Although for most people, popularly, they think it's when, when we had sugarcane farming um, in the middle of the, uh, in the second half of the, of the 19th century. So we have one of the fellows working on that. Uh, we have another fellow working on radical movements in Burkina Faso. We have uh, there's a fellow who lived in Senegal and who wants to explore um, the legacy of women in the liberation struggle uh, in Guinea-Bissau. Uh, under the leadership you know, of the PAICG and Amilcar Cabral. Um, and so we, 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 this is one of the other fellows. We, you know, it's a range of really beautiful fellows. I would recommend that people will look at an article on the website that is titled um, Our Inaugural Class of uh, Africa's Country Fellows. That we were announcing them, and you could see the list, and you could see who's working with them. I hope at some point to bring them onto the program. Um, but this is an exciting moment for Africa's Country. This is also something we've always wanted to do. We've always said... We want to create opportunity for younger writers outside of the mainstream people that you don't normally see. You get the same, there's recycling of the same people writing about Africa. Um, there's always a joke, for example, uh, I hope this doesn't mean the New York Times will never ask me to write anything ever again. But there's always the joke that the New York Times uh, gets gets like novelists to write about politics in Africa. It's not like they, they get novelists to write about American politics on their Robert page, but they always do this for Africa. So there's like one person that they have you know, and then that person gets the floor and so on. And so we're trying to flip that. They, the New York Times incidentally ran a program when they invited 30 um, writers from outside the U.S. to write on the other page. I think it appeared mostly in the International Herald Tribune and online. But it, at the time, it sounded like something interesting. I don't know what happened to that project. So there is, you know, we, we're actually trying to do something where we're saying, look, there's a new batch of writers, new opinions. Um, this is uh, this is this represents an interesting moment in African politics after the after the sort of if you want like what comes after nationalism, like you had post colonialism, uh, you had these movements build up on what comes after nationalism. So okay, I went on and on. So at this point, um, uh, to make a transition, um, I don't know if people know what is today. Today is um, is actually a very important moment. Now, uh, it's June 16th, which is known, uh, which used to be known, I grew up, growing up in South Africa, Soweto Day, and it was to commemorate the uprising in, in Soweto in June 
uh, in the month of June, starting in the month of June in 1976. Uh, um, this is at the height of apartheid, um, and to uh, that movement then galvanized people to the, the sort of immediate thing was was uh, the, the imposition of Afrikaans as a, a uh, mo uh, mode of instruction. So you know, usually people were taught in English things like maths and science, and so the apartheid government insisted that people, that students, be taught in Afrikaans at schools. Um, and this then led to a national uprising, or if you want to call it a strike, by school children. I think this is the key thing. It then spread uh, countrywide. Um, it happened sort of simultaneously at the time when there was the emergence of the black consciousness movement in South Africa. Um, uh, and then it also happened right after the independence of Mozambique and Angola after like liberation wars. Um, and then uh, the next year, unfortunately, there was a there was a, re a reaction by the state with more repression. As you remember, Steve Biko was murdered in 1977. Lots of activists were arrested. Um, but then, subsequent to that, a lot of people see that moment as the, the sort of the second last um, battle towards the end of apartheid. Because after 1976, there's one other pivotal moment, which in South Africa in particular, which is the moment of uh, 1983, the formation of this movement called the United Democratic Front, and then that movement was like a full-on mass movement. It also reintroduced the ideas of the ANC, the African National Congress, back into South Africa. Uh, it brought back ideas of kind of mass movements in South Africa from the 1950s with what was known as the Freedom Charter, um, and then that sort of led to the end of apartheid. And we can, we can, we actually want to talk a little bit about that, Will and I, um, in the segment. So just by way of introduction, well, one of the questions, I was actually on, on on South African television earlier today, and one of the questions that a, a reporter asked me on this in the segment was, um, "Can we make connections between what happened in 1976 um, and what happened here now in the U.S. Like right now, with, with the protests around um, uh, George after George Floyd, uh, George uh, Floyd's murder? Can you you do you think that we can make connections? Are there connections? Are there any connections? Are there anything from that moment where you can say, hey?" This reminds me of that, or doesn't it? That's an interesting question. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I've been reading at the moment has kind of been cautioning us from trying to make easy connections, whether it's between what's happening in America now and 1976, or what's happening in America now and the uprisings of 1968, because they, they sort of serve as these shortcuts which do the intellectual labor of thinking through the moment when we should just try and understand this moment separately from all of the others in history that have led up to it. But um, I do think that it, it, I mean, the easiest connection between 1976 and what's happening now is that it's, it's youth-led, right? Um, it's youth day today. The character of the protests that have been happening in America draw from predominantly young people. And so that's probably... The, the only connection that I'd make now, but I'd, I'd generally be skeptical uh, of analogizing between 1976 and what's happening in America now. Um, it makes sense to start on a day like this and given what's happening in the world, but I'm not sure that they, they actually jive together that well. I mean, let me, let me push you a little bit. I think what I'm trying to say is like, so one, I think, obviously there was an event, right? So the one thing you could, yeah. you want to make a comparison there's an event. The event is the imposition of Afrikaans as a language of instruction. The other event is the murder of, of the callous murder of George Floyd by police on the street. And then there's like an outpouring of like resistance, like 
and not just kind of clandestine resistance. Not, I mean, in the case of South Africa, of course, that's like that's like a war of liberation, right? A long war of liberation. So it's not like there's guerrilla activity. There's like a popular movement. Yeah. In the case of the U.S., there have been. Uh, well, let me let me say the second point. So, like, there's one event. The second thing is like in both cases, I think there's there's the event is a culmination of a series of other events. Like, and I reminded the viewers in South Africa that people forget that 1973 is the formation of the Black Consciousness Movement that brings like a new impetus to politics in South Africa. If you say yeah, it could be BLM 2013-2014, and now we see like a different version of BLM on like a mass scale that includes, interestingly, like lots of white people. Which was which was there in 2013, 2014, but wasn't there at this scale. I think the other part is they were also in South Africa in 1973. There's like a series of mass strikes. So you know, yeah. and this is, a, this is sort of inside baseball that we don't want to go into here. Where some people in South Africa they read history as like the emergence of the Black Consciousness Movement leads to a different kind of politics, and then eventually. I suppose the children of that movement is now Fees Must Fall. Other people see the 73 strike as kind of like opening up the space in South Africa, and then you eventually get Pusatu, and you know, and then you get another kind, which is like the ANC and the politics of the ANC. But I think so there's like an event that's a culmination of like a long series of events. I think the larger thing is the event itself is also uh, sort of a backdrop for a, for a larger concerns that people have. In the U.S., I think, like, what what could life be if we weren't so heavily policed? Uh, this is also a moment in which there's a mass movement around Medicare for all. So I think, like, in South Africa, right, there's, like, the denial of people's political rights, people's economic rights. And so Soweto is merely an expression there. And just to finally, to get back to your point, I think the other one I think that's interesting is 76 also, because you have the ANC, the PAC, have been banned like a decade before. Many of them are in jail. They're outside the country. It seems at that time in South Africa that that movement had sort of, and this is kind of a harsh judgment, but they sort of that movement had stalled, or maybe they become removed from the struggle in South Africa. And so what emerged at '76 is like there's new ideas. There's like a series of new ideas, um, new energy. Like you said, young people, like the ANC or the PAC, they always talk about like after '76, there's an injection. Of like new energies into their movement and I somehow feel I know we're only in this moment and this movement can go either way yeah. it can get gobbled up by the Democratic Party it can get gobbled up by sort of like you know identity politics like the bad the, the, the worst parts of identity politics yeah but there's also something about the energy of it and I and I'm saying this partly because I am in New York and I could see like like if there was I, I used to go on the Black Lives Matter marches in 2013 2014 this is very different. Like the composition of the marches, the energy, the sort of uh, um, just the ad hoc, the kind of like the transgressive nature of it, but at the same time. And then I think the other thing that's really interesting is like how it links up with people outside the U.S. Like you have, you, I, you, I don't think we had this kind of thing before where there, is, there are these massive solidarity marches. There might be five people at an embassy or something. But to get like tens of thousands of people in Berlin and London focusing what's happening in the U.S. And then I think crucially asking those same questions about their own societies. I don't think that that was possible with the first BLM. And it's just my last quick point. I do recognize that we're talking about two totally different situations. Of course, South Africa is a liberation, was a liberation struggle. 
It was a struggle for national self-determination. It was about fundamentally like reordering right the society. This one is a, is different, right? This is about people who are interested in wanting to become part of the polity to reform the political system. Young people are going to vote in December. It's not like they want the whole system. Of course, they want the whole system to change around policing. They want a different set of priorities about what's the role of the state, etc. But this is inside a political system. I mean, that, I, I, maybe that's sort of what I was driving at. And I think the other thing, which I also said earlier today, was for me, there's something about how this movement, if it if it goes into the direction which I hope it does, reminds me a lot more of something like say. When I grew up, the UDF in South Africa, more mass-based, more multi-class, more, more multi-racial. Um, and then I think the point that we were discussing earlier before we came on the air, which is like how this reminds us maybe of elements of, of Fismas Fall. I mean, do you want to say something quickly about that? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that would be an interesting point to explore. Um, I think you're right in, in that what this feels like is that it could be a precursor to a much bigger mass mobilization. Um, as the 1976 uprising was, and it precipitated the formation of the United Democratic Front. And I think uh, I think Fees Must Fall is, is interesting, um, both because everyone views Fees Must Fall as being heritors of the 1976 spirit, and because I think Fees Must Fall is is something of a of a cautionary tale of the other direction in which these sort of revitalized explosions of energies can go in. So uh, 1976 generated this mass mobilization in Fees Must Fall in its first iteration, at least in, in 2015, um, after it grew out of Rose Must Fall and began first as a critique around um, exclusion and racialized exclusion and then developed a much more stronger class character in terms of targeting attention to uh, tuition fee hikes um, and the exclusion of exclusion of poor students in universities, as well as forging solidarity at the time of being outsourced. So in, in 2015, rather, in this first iteration, it did have that sort of uh, multiracial character. It did have that sense of unity. It, it really was about this group of students who were not only challenging the logic of universities, uh, the neoliberal university that had commodified education, but were challenging um, the post-democratic settlement in South Africa um, and the capitalist system that underpinned it, right? Um, so that's the direct, that's, that's the, what it felt like at the moment a lot of people. And it could have, it could have deepened that critique, um, but then it traveled in another direction, which is, I think, one where it, it emphasized the identity-based critique um, and in emphasizing that identity-based critique um, of developing uh, a much more universal uh, emphasis on the, the links between all of these, all of these structure, all of these um, fights for, for liberation. Um, so I think that, that, that those, um, those mobilizations, I think, provide interesting case studies about the, the two directions in which the mobilization we're seeing in the United States at the moment could travel. Transformative potential, um, but at the same time, it could only uh, entrench a lot of the, the 
the identity-based affinities and characteristic of U.S. politics for the last decade or so. Right. And just the last, sort of a quick last point on that. I was talking to my wife, who happens to be the political scientist, um, Jessica Blatt, and she was saying to me that there's, there's something about this moment of Black Lives Matter that, that presents like an interesting potential in that because defund the police has become sort of, it, you know, it was a slogan. And then that slogan becomes something else. That slogan becomes um, uh, maybe they can give it content. I think the phrase she used was BLM provides like a blueprint by, by, by kind of popularizing the idea of defunding. And like then the funding becomes a mainstream idea now. Everybody's talking about the funding. So in the beginning, you might have people saying, oh, the funding, the funding. You don't want no police. And it's like, no, you sound ridiculous. Actually, this is what we would like to see with police. And then the idea might be, which is going to allude to what you said, what happened with Fismas Fall, the opening remains there. The opening is there to say, why don't we give it some other content? We link it to notions about public health, uh, education. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there, there's, a, there's a possibility here, but this movement, as, you, as we were sort of saying, we're living in it. We don't want to, we, we want to try these days to describe things as they are often, yeah. rather than to sort of wish things as to w- the way we want it. And I want to recommend a couple of quick articles before we go over to talk to our guests. I would definitely recommend an article that um, Cedric Johnson wrote uh, on Nonsite, which is a, a website of Emory University. I could definitely recommend um, that, that article. There's a really good interview with Paul Gilroy um, and Ruthie Gilmore. I think it's on the website of King's College um, that, is, that is also sort of debating some of the things. And there's a really great interview uh, with Vivek Chibber that just appeared on, on Jacobin Radio. I think, or I think it's on Michael Brooks's show um, where some of these debates and issues are, are being played out. In any case, we could go on and on about these things. Um, uh, thanks, Will, for that. So um, this maybe this is a moment to make that transition because, um, as, as you can hear, we're animated by the, the sort of urgencies of our moment, right, which is this, this, this kind of how do we deal with this epidemic of police violence and thinking about how, how this is part of a larger sort of systemic question about how our societies are organized. So we have with us, I was going to be like, so like in the studio, this is not a studio. <laughs> we have with us um, Paul T. Clark. He is a, um, a, a PhD student, graduate student, um, PhD candidate in African and African-American studies at Harvard University. Um, he has written on the website, if you, you could look for his, uh, for, for the, some of the articles that he's written, mostly on, on police, um, and prison, uh, reform, well, I'm going to use the word for now, like reform. I don't think that's what he means, um, in South Africa, particularly, which is where his work is. And so with that, I, I just wanted to say like, uh, welcome to the program, Paul. And, um, actually I was like, Paul, because that's my dad's name, by the way, <laughs> that's <laughs> Like I had a little moment there. Welcome to the program, Paul. So just by way of introduction, Paul, um, before we get into sort of the questions about policing um, and, and sort of colonial policing and like as, as, like as to how we got here where we are today, can you say just a little bit about how you got to your research and how you got to working um, in South Africa? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, so my research is not actually on the public police per se, but I, I actually work on private security. Um, so the kind of post-1994 moment where we see a massive outgrowth of this this private for-profit policing industry. Um, and I came to that project 
um, actually in 2015 when I was doing a, a master's at BITS um, during the Fees Must Fall kind of um, year, I guess. Um, and I got involved in, I got ethnographic access to a private security company to try to figure out, um, as an American, kind of what is going on with this massive fortification that you see in Johannesburg um, and trying to make sense of how this sort of thing comes about. Um, and that early project has grown into my dissertation project, which looks at um, how this industry, um, it, the mandate of the industry is kind of shifting, it's growing, they have, I think, more duties, and the scale of the industry is also changing um, to be broader and more profitable, right? So it's an increasingly kind of important labor market, and it's also an increasingly important uh, area of financialization, I'm finding out. So that's kind of the contradiction between the labor market and the financial market that I'm looking at. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so why don't we, why don't we, thanks for that. I mean, we, we, that's, a, that's a separate topic actually that, well, it's actually related because the one thing in South Africa you rightly point out is like you then have the SAP, the South African Police Service is policing poor people. Mm -hmm. in the counter. And then there's this private policing that is developing in, on these private estates, right? Like these kind of middle-class private estates um, the, to the north of the city, which then brings in another dimension of these sort of, I don't want to call them paramilitaries, but the, these, these kind of militias almost. They, they, they're a form of militia that then controls public space. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's fascinating when you think about the history of South African policing in general, because there's always a privatized component of it, right? So it, this is not necessarily new, but the degree to which it's privatized and the sort of form that it takes, which is like a straightforwardly corporate form, I think is kind of different. Um, and the way that it interacts with the kind of current South African political economy is different than for example, the militias and the commandos of the early kind of Cape Colony, which had different kind of functions and mandates. But yeah, I think it's it's a crucial point that like it's it's always been privatized, um, and it it it's been privatized to a degree that it hasn't been in the U.S. Um, I think so. The U.S. I think has in most of most places been able the state has been able to command a kind of monopoly on force, right? And it has used kind of um, vigilante groups. Like you can think about the lynching where the police are in collaboration with the white mob um, to kind of strengthen its own monopoly. But I think the U.S. has commanded historically a better control over deadly force. Um, whereas in South Africa, it's always been more privatized, right? Um, even, through, even through the various iterations of South African police that we've seen. And the attempt to control people, right? The use of like passes, which dates back to, to the end of slavery, if I'm not if I'm not correct. Yeah, yeah. No, the pass law system is yeah has had very deep roots, <clears throat> and it's fascinating. Excuse me. It's fascinating because the pass law system deputizes the employer, right, to make sure that the employee is kind of keeping within the biometric system of the pass law system. So the police officer. It's part of a broader kind of surveillance network that includes, like, pretty much every white citizen, right, who can who can stop anyone on the street and check the pass. So this always kind of uh, semi-private character is, is consistent throughout, and it just takes different forms at different periods of history. So, so one thing that I think is, is becoming 
clear to everyone in this moment is what are, what are the origins and the function of policing? And already in this discussion, we're alluding to how historically the function of the police is as a means of social control. Can you, can you talk a bit more to that and the, the history and origins of policing? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so, so I, I think about it in maybe four different periods where you have kind of different arrangements of forces. The first one being the kind of early Cape Colony where you have a militia system or a commando system. Uh, and the mandate is twofold, right? To discipline enslaved labor and to make sure that the sort of appropriations or dispossessions on the frontier are never kind of turned back. So the sort of theft that um, settlers are doing of cattle and of land, and the militia is, in, is there to ensure that that doesn't kind of um, get rolled back, right? Um, the next period, I think, would be kind of like the mineral uh, revolution or the industrialization starting in Kimberley and then later in Johannesburg where you have the development wide um, a broad scale wage labor right and the need to kind of cheapen black labor um, and also keep it separate from white labor right so there are no sort of coalitions that form so you have both public police forces which are always kind of semi-military right they kind of move between the military and the police at different times um, or there to break strikes um, to ensure that wages stay low. And then also they're there to make sure that those people who are forced out of wage labor and join kind of groups of bandits don't, don't kind of make the system too chaotic or too violent to sustain, right? Um, at, at the same time, so you have that state police force, and then you also have what are called mine police too, which are kind of in the compounds making sure that labor discipline is there, that people are heading down the shafts to kind of dig the gold and get the diamonds out as, as well. So that would be the second period. Um, and, and that, of course, is like when the past law system comes into its kind of full efficacy um, and continues through to the high apartheid period. The next um, period really, which is, it's, it's very fitting for today, is the post-1976 uh, 19, moment um, where the the National Party realizes that they cannot really control the level of uprising in the country. And they set out a series of neoliberal reforms that call on industry to do its own protection, right? So there's something called the National Key Points Act, which comes up in Zuma's administration for other reasons, but it really was about this, this privatization of force where um, corporations were now responsible for protecting infrastructure, um, and uh, doing their own security right. Um, and that really is the birth of the modern private security industry. Um, from there, we have the post-1994 moment where we have a series of reforms that moves towards what's called human rights policing. Um, the, the police service is renamed, right? So it, it becomes a service that all South Africans can access. Personnel changes, it's more multiracial. Um, and they also do things um, which you could see as cosmetic, about like putting police stations in areas that were policed from the outside in, right? And now these places would be policed from the inside out, like Alexandra or, or Soweto or something, some other places like that. Um, and I think we're, we are approaching, I would like to think we're approaching another moment, right? Where the kind of realization that that 1994 set of reforms did not really sustain itself and was not able to deliver uh, 
security, safety, or justice um, to the vast majority of South African citizens. Can I can I just before we before you before we get back into the sort of post-apartheid moment? I know Will may have a follow-up, but just a quick question about this. I know that in in the late 1980s, I think it's like 1989, there was a there was this cop, uh, Gregory Rockman. I don't know if you remember this moment, who uh, he refused to shoot protesters. This is like during kind of late apartheid. There was an election. And uh, he was operating in the, on the Cape Flats in a township called Mitchell's Plain. And he refused to, to take an order from like a lieutenant to shoot at protesters. And he said as a black policeman, he was not going to do that. And he sort of identified himself with people. He then subsequently was suspended. I mean, not to get too deep into the weeds of that. But the outcome of that is he formed a new trade union called the uh, Police and Prison Civil Rights Union. I'm And for many people, this was seen as he eventually, I think he became an ANC MP. But this union was beginning to think of, is there a way that we can rethink policing? Like, is, is the point of you know, this kind of punitive way that you've described police, the origins of policing in South Africa? So my question is, just before we move on, in that moment, roughly before 19, that's sort of in the lead up to 1994 and then comes after that, of course, we have a constitution. You're right, they renamed the police as a service. Is there like in that, in that particular, from your research or just from what you know, is there, is there, is there, is there any attempt from the moment that sort of it becomes clear to, I would say, people within the ANC or what becomes known as civil society, non-governmental organizations, do they get a sense that, hey, we can rethink what we mean by policing. Not just changing the name, but yeah. we can fundamentally restructure what we think, like the way people here talk about defunding. Mm -hmm. um, even more than that, where people are just saying like, hey, there's a different way you could police a society. Um, we don't have to police the society like we did on that part day. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a crucial question. So I, I think by inadvertently, by, by, by focusing on the, the kind of name change um, I may have suggested that like the efforts were disingenuous or superficial. I actually don't think that's the case. I think they actually did want to substantively change how the police force worked, right? And there was an enormous amount of openness in the police force at that time, bringing on in researchers like um, my supervisor at BITS, Julio Hornberger, to kind of see this new project and to contribute, right? So I don't read it as a kind of lack of good faith on the part of the kind of ANC at the time, or um, even the police, right? I think they, they really were invested in, in producing a democratic uh, police force that was just and followed human rights, uh, and, and that kept within the Constitution. However, the difficulty that you have with that when you don't fundamentally change the political economy of South Africa is that you force policing back into its kind of essential form, which is pure coercion, right? So you have police officers being told, you know, we want to do. We want you to do human rights policing, but they're faced with enormous amounts of disorder, um, and they also know that that's part of their mandate, right? So the Americana moment, I I think we can see this kind of uh, this kind of uh, culmination of this process, right? Where there is a good faith desire to kind of change the police force, but the when the rubber hits the road, you know, when when poor people are demanding a certain larger share, like the, the police are going to be called in to make sure that that the system keeps running, right? 
because it cannot, it, it can fundamentally not accommodate those, those demands, right? Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's important not to kind of uh, characterize them as bad actors, right? Um, but really that this is, a, this is kind of a structural reality, um, that the police operate to kind of protect capital, um, and, and, and those with property. I think the, the, the next question I'd like to ask, and I think this is an opportune moment to do so, just given what everyone said so far, is if everyone is now coming to understand that the fundamental role of the police in any society is to protect capital, to enforce private property relations, and to labor, then my question is, and I think it's, it's interesting that you mentioned how the, the development of privatization in South Africa began in a moment of deep unrest and uprising in 1976, and that's when privatization first started. Um, when we think about a moment of deep uprising and unrest, as we are witnessing in America, which are being expressed for culminating in calls to defund the police, the question then becomes, well, if defunding the police isn't going to happen concomitantly with a fundamental reordering of the political economy in the United States, like you say, is necessary in order for us to even begin to reimagine the role of policing, I think a lot of people have wondered this, is how do we then prevent a situation where American, uh, the, co the coercion and the function of coercion that the police ordinarily play isn't something that is just undertaken by private security uh, companies, as you know, has largely become the case here in South Africa. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, um, and I think it's on, it's a question that's on the uh, minds of many American abolitionists. I mean, specifically myself. Like, I've, I've, this is kind of central to my dissertation work, right? Um, I think what's crucial about the defund movement right now is that it's always married with a kind of demand for reinvesting of those same funds into kind of social programs, right? And we can we can debate about how efficacious those social programs will be in kind of changing the broader political economy of the US. Um, and it may be it may be quite meager, right? But I think what it what is interesting about the defund movement is it, it is really kind of a a, an, a a mechanism to raise consciousness about the way in which um, governments operate fiscally, right? So people are, are looking at police budgets in a way, and, and city budgets and municipal budgets and state budgets in ways that they had never done before. Um, and kind of seeing that, like, oh, the stuff for youth services is $4 million and the stuff for the police is $66 million, right? Um, and I think that is the essential contribution, right? Um, of course, no movement is going to be able to sustain the sort of deep transformations um, that it seeks in the political economy without, like, without state organizing, right? So the, the, this moment will pass, right? And the measure of whether abolitionists can um, kind of fundamentally shift the political economy, will, that, that their power will be measured by their organizing ground, right? So, like, whether the... the um, Minneapolis Police Department really is disbanded, will not come from the goodwill of the Democratic politicians in power. Um, but it'll come from the abol 
abolitionist organizations were there who are really forcing the issue and constantly saying, like, no, you can't just cut the budget of the police without giving more money to social programs, right? Without growing the welfare state, um, without giving people more power, more say over how the city's governed. So I, th- I think it's a it's a definite hazard, um, and I think it's, it's about always marrying the two, right? About divesting and reinventing those funds. Can I, uh, the question, just to follow up on that, so this, this movement to defund the police, or as you describe it, which is essentially to think about how do, how do we think about budgeting, does, that, does, does a movement like that exist in South Africa, or do movements like that exist in South Africa? And if you want, and I know your work is mostly in South Africa, but if you think even broader than South Africa on the continent, do these kind of movements that talk about defunding the police, that talk about reforming the prison system, um, do they do they exist in places like South Africa or, or because the other the other the, the connected to this is something that we had had uh, we can call it a debate if you want which was well wrote an article um, around why is it that people in South Africa weren't or in African countries I think South Africa was a stand-in for for why people on the continent weren't showing the same kind of energy or anger kind of organized energy to to make a case around police brutality. Um, and he made some arguments, and then Paul responded with his, you know, with his own kind of like. So I, I remember telling, "Well, we have a debate." Um, <laughs> in any case, um, why is it that we sort of look? Why? Why are we? Well, I'm sort of perplexed as to like why, in a place like South Africa, where and I mentioned earlier, like the Kenya numbers, you know, these very high numbers of, of police murders. Why don't Why don't one that kind of energy not exist on the street? And secondly, when when this, the protests are over, I mean, is, do the, do these kind of movements exist in South Africa, or are they just doing like reform? Um, I I think that they don't. They certainly don't exist to the extent that they do in the U.S. Um, and that and that there is interesting movement that I'm just starting. To see within the past month, kind of develop that, that political culture, that sensibility, um, borrowing a lot of stuff from the U.S. Um, I don't know Kenya as well, but actually, I think that there's actually more organizing in Kenya than there is in South Africa. Um, but I'm not, I'm not. That's kind of not very uh, founded in, in too much. Uh, I think you're. I think you're right. I think you're right. Sorry for interrupting, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, um. And I think. I think like. So I think abolition is an important concept here, um, and and we should we should understand defunding as a particular tactic that is useful in the American context at this particular juncture to accomplish abolition. I don't think that the my sense, and I still need to develop this, is about what abolition would look like in South Africa is that it probably wouldn't lead with a defund kind of um, movement, right? The reality is that because of the austerity kind of crisis in South Africa, that the police are already cutting their budgets, right? Um, in the in the kind of broader retrenchment of the state, right? So I think there needs to be more of an affirmative politics around developing broader um, social programs, while keeping in mind that whenever the opposition party and see offers punitive solutions to social problems that people can push back and say, this is this is a red herring, right? But we actually need social programs, right? 
Um, I, I think there are important differences. There are important differences in, in, in how we should approach the tactics of abolition in, in the U.S. and South Africa. I mean, the, the question about why it ha hasn't happened in South Africa, I mean, the, the reality is, is that crime is a much, much larger preoccupation for South Africans, right? Um, crime, crime has been declining since the transitional period in South Africa, but it's still at a rate that um, it's unsustainable, I think, for, um, for most people. Um, and I think that's because of the depth of deprivation in South Africa is much more extreme than it is in the U.S., um, much more broad and much more extreme. Um, so I think you do need, I think you need to approach it from the social side um, first, and then, but but always be aware that this the kind of move to more punitive politics is a way that capital gets out of the kind of accountability that, that people want to forge. To, to jump in and, and ask a question about that, um, I think you're, you're absolutely right in, in emphasizing that the big difference between the South African context and the American context is the high rate of crime that we as South Africans experience. And I think that one difficulty because of that is as much as it is useful to emphasize social programs and to draw people's attention to the social conditions which produce crime, uh, I think at the same time that South Africans understandably still yearn for uh, effective policing. I mean, one of the more sort of hot button issues in South Africa, and rightly so, is, you know, the wide extent of gender-based violence, how ill-equipped police officers are in dealing with that, and how broken our criminal justice system is in trying to deliver justice to victims of gender-based violence. So maybe speak to some of the history you know here. My sense is that a lot of the more modest reforms which have tried have been tried and failed in the American context seem like they could work well here. So reforms that are about um, developing police accountability, that are about trying to root out corruption, that are about trying to rein in you know the bellicosity of some of its figureheads, sort of things like that. Do you think? those are still viable in the South African context, or what might be something that, at the very least, ensures that our community services are, are competent and move away from this uh, punitive and you know, masculinist sort of uh, character and orientation? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, I don't know if South Africans desire a more competent police. I think what they desire is safety and security, right? And I think that the police will never deliver safety and security in in this political economy, right, period. And they don't deliver it even in political economies that are more equitable, right? I think the question of gender-based violence is, is, is absolutely central, and um, I would point to the, the work of abolitionists like Mir abolitionists in the U.S., like Miriam Kaba um, and Beth Ritchie, who have really come to their abolitionist uh, consciousness through kind of working against gender-based violence, right? And realizing that Prisons and police do not actually deliver justice or safety to women who are subject to gender-based violence. Often, there are engines of that violence, right? So we know that police brutalize victims, right? We also know um, that many victims or survivors do not come forward, right? Um, period, right? So the system already doesn't work for, for thousands of women, right? 
and and I should say women, non-binary people, right, um, queer people. So I, I would say that that like I think South Africans desire safety and security, and I think the conversation is about how to deliver that, and a reminder that the police actually can't deliver that, and they've never delivered that, and that's not their function. So we had some questions. I think we're sort of getting here to the end, which is a great discussion. We could go on for hours um, because there were some other things where I'm like, can you just break down the whole, if you if you could take us through the whole debate around the popularity of, you know, what different people mean. Different people mean different things by defunding. Different people mean different things by abolition. But let me yeah. just, and hopefully we could say about something about that before we go over this. I just want to read some of the questions. We have some comments uh, with Dylan ask, um, there seems to be an appetite for punitive policing in South Africa across the board. Why is this the case? That's a great question. I don't. I don't think that the the kind of VCs or that punitive sensibility are all the same, right? I think that there are actually different political constituencies that have come to punitive solutions through their own routes. But we can think of forms of feminism that are see prisons and policing as the kind of um, the just solution, right? Um, and I think that people need to attend um, to that what we might call carceral feminism, that people really do have substantive concerns, right, about gender-based violence, and that those need to be kind of remedied. I think that there's also kind of, uh, I mean, obviously, white South Africa has different concerns about property, right, um, and the kind of sense that they're being slowly pushed out of the country, um, and that kind of figures into a more punitive kind of mindset. And then you kind of have people who are subject to kind of uh, small petty theft, like that the, the amount of st that's stolen is not a great deal, but that is hugely catastrophic um, for their own neighborhoods, right? So lose a cell phone um, when you're only making maybe 400 grand a month, right? Or you're on a social grant, that's catastrophic, right? And there's no kind of solution that people see. So I think that like, there's no solution that people see otherwise to remedy those problems. So I think we should try that there's diversity in the kind of constituents these that politics. Um, and it really has been the sign of all problems in South African society. If we could just get rid of crime, we'd be halfway to kind of justice or liberation, which I think has always, has always been a distraction to the actual issues um, and the need for wealth redistribution. Can I ask like one other question? I'm not sure if Will has a question, but somebody here asked about, and I'm trying to reframe that question, which I think we never really sort of get got at, which is the relationships between these different police forces around the world and the way in, for example, whether, whether it might be the methods of policing, but also training. Like one of the things I think that has emerged in the Minneapolis situation is how uh, the police in Minneapolis got training in Israel like certain kind of, you know, kind of how to deal with people in violent situations, like really sort of like their reaction also being like violence. Um, can you say something about the extent, and again, as we, uh, we know your expertise is on South Africa, and I know you could answer that, but if you, if, you, if you could also extend it, to what extent do African police services, or specifically the South African police, take on methods, trainings, etc., from what is obviously a broken police system in, in the U.S., and then 
is there any usefulness or is it any better like if they are getting training for example from european police services does it does it make not that training is the way that's concerned but again like just if you think about this kind of I mean, this question was more sort of a very kind of deliberate saying like about anti-imperialism the role of u.s police is kind of imperial u.s imperial state and it's police extension of that project but i'm so i'm sort of trying to make it more concrete like can you say something about that like because i think we're sort of missing also how these how these different services are connected to each other their ethos their methods their style of policing yeah i think that's a great question i mean um so i know that the human rights model right that, that it comes post 1994 does come out of europe right it comes out of the kind of un affiliated countries um and kind of imported um my sense is that the the real kind of um exchange between both uh saps and private police is is in terms of um like material right so like different types of like uh, surveillance technology um flows from the global north places like germany uh israel the u.s um to kind of south africa but i i think we shouldn't be kind of uh i i think that we should keep track of the fact that South Africa has its own kind of very substantive uh, arms manufacturing, right? Um, and that the kind of methods that have been developed over 400 years of colonialism are actually pretty well adapted to the system as is, right? So I think that you you have a kind of, of course you have um, exchanges, right, between the global north and the global south, um, especially around these kind of imperial exercises like AFRICOM, but my sense is that, that really South African policing responds to the exigencies on the ground, right? And it draws on the kind of historical archive of policing um, more than it, it, it's really influenced by um, the U.S. The caveat to that being is, like, often these training programs are highly opaque, right? And they won't be shared to the public. So there's a, there's a possibility that there's, there's more training going on, and it's, it's just not open to the public, right? Well, do you, do you have one last question you want to um, ask, Paul? Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess my my last question is, um, what does you know, this is the African context? What does the left do? Is it sufficient for the South African left to emphasize social program and economic redistribution as being? the path through which we can mitigate the extent of social disorder? Should there be other ways, are there other ways in which we can try and sort of um, claw back the power and the brutality of the police in society? And then the last thing to add to that, which I know will be a, a bit of a controversial question, but it's something that I think of quite a lot and it seems especially true in South Africa, um, a lot of people talk about the, the working class composition of the state's apparatus. And I think that fact is a little bit more pronounced here in South Africa. Um, during Feasmus 4, for example, one of the appeals that students would make to private security or police officers is to say, you know, we are your children. Um, so do you think that there's this potential to ever mobilize um, members of the oppressive apparatuses against their function? Or is that uh, a, a, a futile endeavor? Yeah, two great questions. I mean, my very kind of glib answer 
to the first question is like the left would probably exist before it does anything, right? Um, you know, I, I think that South Africa has been, it's almost been completely demobilized, right? I, I don't see a political party that it, like even a political party, like the Democratic Party that can, that the left in the U.S. has used to kind of show the contradictions, right? That the left has used the Democratic Party in very interesting ways to show how they're not able to deliver. And to do so, that is kind of a, kind of a way to raise consciousness right broadly. So, I mean, I think, I, I don't know. I don't know what, what abolition looks like in South Africa. I know that it is kind of like a Gramscian war of position, right? It, it, it is in the U.S. It's a war of position, right? But it often talks like it's a war of maneuver because that's actually a very good tactic to kind of raise consciousness for people. Um, I don't know what the position should be, actually. Um, it's something that I, I think I'll write about maybe at the end of the summer. Um, it's kind of been percolating. I think I think what um, we need to do is kind of lay out what is different about the South African case versus the American case. And once I have that figured out, I can kind of prioritize different things first, right? Um, the second question is it's a great one. I think I think when you are in a direct confrontation between students and private security, it's highly unrealistic to expect those people whose jobs and livelihoods depend on them doing that work to kind of put down their weapons, right? The 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 precarity, particularly of young men in South Africa, I think it's sometimes overplayed or underplayed. Um, and people actually don't have access to alternative forms of labor, right? Um, period. And, and, and I know from my own research that what people are really doing is they're accumulating enough kind of money or capital to buy um, semi-durable things like cars so they could they can run a taxi service or something like that, right? So people are, people are looking for ways out, I would say, but there are no ways out um, at the kind of broader level for people to really put things down and say, you know, I'll, I'll hop onto this side. Um, so I think I think what you need to do is kind of open up the possibilities for most of the young men. There, there are some women um, and other people in the industry, but it's mostly young men, mostly young black men, of course, um, to kind of have alternatives, right, before anything could happen. That, it's really a stalemate, you know. You can't expect them to kind of become the kind of revolutionary force. I would say that, like, if you, there is interesting labor organizing within the industry that I don't, and that that has some potential, but I, I need to speak to those people directly before I could, you know, make prognostication. I mean, we wanted to end on a more positive note, but I heard Paul when he said, I think he said something like the South African left. I think Will and I have this, have this kind of, we want to hear something positive about the South <laughs> The South African left might go in all of this, but it sounds from what Paul is saying, like the South African left being sort of, what's it, uh, decimated, like there's no, people, I think people are sort of very negative. And I think we can make some of the same arguments for the left elsewhere. But um, I want to thank Paul for coming on today. This was really wonderful and great. And for being with us for the whole program, we, we sometimes inadvertently, he went into the things that we, that we, you know, that we were trying to like tease out, like where, how viable would a defund the police movement be in a place like South Africa? And by extension, you can you can slot in the name of an African country in there, Kenya, Ghana. There's like 
you know, it works differently. We're talking about different things here. We're talking about instances where the police looks like the people. I think Will said this thing at the end where fees must fall protesters said, you are our fathers or it could be my brother. So there's like, you know, that class character of the police. I think there's an article I saw on CNN with a, like, it's, a, oh, it's your own brother who's murdering you. So with that, um, I want to thank Paul. Yeah, this was great. Uh, next week, we're going to continue this discussion when we bring in Wangui. Paul mentioned sort of doing, and, and we, would, we were sort of tentatively saying, I'm not sure. But yeah, there is a lot of organizing around the, the police and what the police is doing in Kenya and, and whether people can think of other alternatives. And uh, Wangui is involved with this group called, as I said, the Matari Social Justice Center. And hopefully um, she, she's agreed to come on next week. So we look forward to talking to her then. Um, and I want to apologize to those people who also asked uh, questions here, uh, mostly at the end via um, social media that we didn't get to your question. But thanks for viewing it. I think it's your job. I was like, I'm going to give you an instruction to go tell your friends now to tune in when we do this again um, next week. And also to, if you want, share this on your Facebook, uh, you know, your Twitter, um, your WhatsApp. Share it to your, to your WhatsApp group. I mean, we'd love to see the program grow. And if you have any comments um, about how we do the program, things that you think we can do better, uh, feel free to send, to send us your comments. For myself, <laughs> this sounds like I'm like on a official program. For myself, Sean Jacobs, Will Shoki, and Paul Clark. And I'm producer, that <laughs> sounds really ridiculous, Antonette, you know, see you. No, I got to stop. Um, anyway, yeah, next week, we're back. We're going to be back. But this was great. I really enjoyed this discussion today. Thank you, Paul. You've been a great guest. Thanks. Good pleasure. Yeah. Okay.